You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Okay, well, welcome back to Radio Free Philosophy. My name is Kevin Brown. And I'm Bob Uricu. And today we're going to talk about the objectivist philosophy of Ayn Rand. Yes. Why don't we just discuss Ayn Rand to begin with her background uh, to understand that she's a, she was not born in this country, she was born in Russia and she came to this country at a young age and loved I mean, she, her first experience was, was with the Soviets and she loved America so much she loved capitalism, she fell in love with it she fell in love with freedom and she never went back and for an immigrant, she she associated herself with Cecil B. DeMille, got a job as a screenwriter or a, a reviewer, and um, basically has, has has been part of the uh, the American, I guess, entertainment industry. So she's a screenwriter. She became a novelist. English wasn't her, her native language, and she learned it fluently. Um, she married an actor, and has just been part of that um, that scene in America so I think it's important to know all that stuff yeah and she's done what uh, many philosophers perhaps aspire to secretly though they don't admit it which is cross over from philosophy to popular culture uh-huh, yeah. Sartre did it in, mm-hmm. in France uh, but there haven't been a lot of people in America to do it as successfully as Rand has No, certainly with the novels and uh, and her two novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, sell about 400,000 copies a year, even to this day. So she, in, in writing those novels, she expressed her philosophy and her love for newfound America. And um, I wonder if, just to get our discussion going, we couldn't list some statements that she might make, that, that Ayn Rand might make herself. How about this one? I'd rather have truth and personal responsibility than having unconditional love and belongingness. You can't have both. How about that? That's one of the interesting things that that people who criticize Rand always point out is her love of these dichotomies, which might turn out to be false, Mm -hmm. but she's certainly very very good at, at, at contrasting the decisions that you have you can either have this or that but you can't have both and that that, that turns out to be a sticking point for a lot of critics mm-hmm. and I imagine uh, that would be one of the first that they would point to as a problematic dichotomy why, why is it that you can't have both or is it because yeah. you've you phrased them as such extreme versions that you can't have both whereas maybe the reality is not uh, that the choices are always that extreme between you know, complete self-interest and complete sacrificing your life to others. Of course, she was very much against the notion of altruism oh, because it yes. entailed oh, yes. self-sacrifice. But you know, many critics would say, well, is that really the choice that you have between completely being selfish and self-interested or completely sacrificing your life to another? Now, she seems to think it is. And one of the spin-offs of her discovering America was the freedom that it went right to her head, this, and and seeing that the 
well, what we call today the free enterprise system, uh, laissez-faire capitalism, unfettered capitalism, where people are free to accomplish their economic goals on their own. And that freedom um, caused her to make some pretty bizarre statements. Now, here's something she might say. Let's try this one. Somebody's got to make money before somebody else can mooch off it. It's a violation of reality and the moral law to take money you have not earned. See, again, to, to me, that brings up the dichotomy. You either have somebody who's taking or you have somebody that's earning. Mm -hmm. And there's no in-between there. Even uh, Adam Smith very famously pointed out that uh, even beggars um, don't behave in the way that uh, Rand seems to be describing as the takers. He says in Wealth of Nations, nobody but a beggar chooses to depend chiefly upon the benevolence of his fellow citizens. And then he says even a beggar does not depend upon it entirely. The charity of well-disposed people indeed supplies him with the whole fund of his subsistence. But though this principle ultimately provides him with all the necessaries of life which he has occasion for, it neither does nor can provide him with them as he has occasion for them. The greater part of his occasional wants are supplied in the same manner as those of other people, by treaty, by barter, and by purchase. So I think even Adam Smith, who's regarded as the father of free market capitalism, would, would sort of disagree with her characterization there it's as people are either... Uh, makers of money or, or takers. It sounds as though he would. But let's, let's listen to her, her own words where she describes her, her political um, economic system. She says, and this is a quote, the ideal political economic system is laissez-faire capitalism. It's a system where men deal with one another not as victims and executioners, nor as masters and slaves, but as traders by free voluntary exchange to mutual benefit. It's a system where no man may obtain any values from others by resorting to physical force, and no man may initiate the use of physical force against others. The government acts only as a policeman that protects man's rights. The government uses physical force only in retaliation and only against those who initiate its use, such as criminals or foreign invaders. It's a system of full capitalism. So that's Ayn Rand herself. So that leads to several corollaries on her part. If, um, if you have unfettered capitalism, then the, the virtue, the main virtue, is to um, find yourself by acquiring wealth. So a virtue is wealth and not everyone should have that virtue. So she said something really startling. She said, and this isn't a quote, but this is something she might say, who is fit to inherit money? Only the person who doesn't need it. Now, this is not like the antithesis of New Deal uh, thinking in the Roosevelt era, and she hated the New Deal. Yeah, you can see why uh, uh, many political conservatives and libertarians would have taken to her philosophy very enthusiastically. Except that it does differ somewhat, I, I would say, from Adam Smith's version of laissez-faire capitalism, if only because at the bottom of Smith's version was a notion of, of um, 
virtue that's radically different from Rand's notion of uh, self-interest as, mm -hmm. as virtue. Yeah, in fact, she says true morality is first and foremost self-interest. That's the foundation for morality. In, in fact, she calls her philosophy objectivism, and everybody else goes along with it, because she claims there's, a, there's an objective reality out there that is that, that it's capable of being known, and that you become fully human when you you rely on your senses to know objective reality that's out there. That reality is telling you what is out there to be possessed, what is out there to be gained, and to be understood and grappled with. And the fully functioning human being is someone who is, who becomes all he can be in that sense. I guess the interesting question with respect to this philosophy of objectivism would be how, how she traces the reasoning process from the metaphysics through to the ethics and politics because obviously she wants to make a connection between this metaphysics of an objective reality and the ethics of self-interest and, and politics of capitalism. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what's the connecting thread? How does she get from the metaphysics to the, to the statements of value? Well, again, objectivism says that reality, true reality, is out there. It's not what we wish it to be. It's not what we want it to be. So if we want it, if we wish for a just society, then that's it. delusional thinking. Reality is out there in the form of wealth and power, and we are to, to gain it. And if, if that means stepping on other people, then that's all right. This is where she departed from Kant. Right. Kant right. divided the entire world into the, or the entire, all reality into the noumenal and the phenomenal and maintain that we can only know the phenomena. We can't know things in and of themselves. She is violently opposed to that. She feels we can know things as they really are. And she also rebukes Kant for his notion of morality, that she feels that if you do anything because you have to, if you do something out of duty, then you aren't fully human. You must do something because you want to do something not because you have to. And similarly, she hated Kant's notion that uh, in ethics, if you attain a goal by stepping on other people, by using people as a means to an end, then you have attained that goal unethically. And she said some people are just wanting to be stepped on, wanting to be used. In fact, here's a statement that may, may coincide with her. Um, Love must be earned not all human beings deserve to be loved. For her, some people are moochers. They're, they're never going to become fully human, and we're not responsible for their poor choices. She said, you're a parasite if you live a second-hand life, if you depend for material well-being on other people. You're a parasite. And she says, to consume more than you produce is dishonest. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Which, of course, was uh, uh, Milton Friedman's famous way of characterizing... She's been called the philosophical Milton. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Except that the, one of the problems, it seems like, with that, even from a free market standpoint, is um, 
we're all dependent on others. There's no such thing uh, in a global economy, even if you just just want to analyze it from a from an economic standpoint. This notion that she has of of atomistic individualism is mm-hmm. it's almost unattainable. Well, think of the way she she came from the collective mentality in Russia to America with its rugged individualism. So she, when she writes her her novels, her hero is a is a rugged individualist who goes against everybody else and grabs what he can. He has a vision and he does everything he can to achieve it, like John Galt in in Adler Shrugged. Right. But the reality, which she does seem to be at least passingly interested in, is <laughs> much different than that. I mean, take even the quintessential uh, American individualist. One of her uh, protagonists was said to have been inspired by Franklin Wright. Uh, certainly, mm-hmm. a good example of a, of a, an iconoclast and an individualist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But if you if you look at the story of Wright's life, you recognize that he had and needed and depended upon all kinds of supporting mechanisms, not the least of which were his his clients, whom he was uh, often uh, using as financial support. Now, maybe Rand would defend that as as uh, a good example of self-interest, but some of his clients thought he was just mooching off of them. So even Wright is an ambiguous character mm-hmm. in this respect, mm-hmm. uh, though I suspect she she probably admired him for his individualism and and, and iconoclasm. Mm-hmm. But the story seems like it's it's a little bit more complicated than Rand's dichotomies are painting it out to be. This notion of you're either an individualist or you are sponging off of other people. Well, I didn't make my breakfast this morning in, in as much as I didn't make the bread mm-hmm. or the peanut butter mm-hmm. or the containers in which they came or the trucks that got them to the store, and you can carry that story back as far as you want. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge amount of uh, mechanisms that I didn't have anything to do with except that I did give somebody the money for the end product, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of dependence built into that system. Yeah, we live in a world that's interdependent. All, our, all the economies of the world are interdependent, and she seems to be from another era, and, and she seems to be an extremist in the sense that there are two extremes. And she, when you dichotomize reality, you end up with extremism. Well, what if we take a break, and then we can talk about maybe some of the uh, influences that Rand's philosophy has had uh, since her death, and certainly there have been a lot of Good. a lot of influences. Let's do that. Now you must know that the word radical is a beautiful word. You know what the word radical means? Radical is root, and radical means of the root. And these root men, you know, are not looked upon with very great favor in any process of civilization. They've always had to make their way through a great opposition. Most of them have been assassinated at one time or another, and will continue to be, I imagine, so long as the static, which we now call civilization, is allowed to be administered as it is now administered. Okay, we're back, and we're talking about uh, Rand's philosophy of objectivism. And it might be interesting to consider some of the ways that her philosophy has influenced people or some of the reactions that it has 
uh, garnered since being written. Uh, certainly it's had some tangible effects, maybe in a way that few other American-based philosophers have had, which certainly makes it worth uh, considering. Uh, Michael Shermer, in a book titled um, Why People Believe Weird Things, makes the point that I think nobody would disagree with, that Rand's critics come from all political positions, left, right, and center. Uh, now, that's not to say that she only has critics. There are a lot of people who are big fans of her, but her critics don't simply come from one side of the political spectrum, which is kind of interesting because of her zealous defense of free market capitalism. But uh, many of her critics uh, are among the, uh, or were among the, the luminaries of the of the political right. Uh, William F. Buckley Jr. Uh, is a good example, uh, and his close friend Whitaker Chambers, who very famously wrote a review of Atlas Shrugged, that many people regarded as the first step towards reading her out of the conservative movement. Uh, he called it a very silly book. Uh, Buckley called her philosophy desiccated. So there have been lots of, um, lots of critics, even from those who had reason to be sympathetic because, of course, she was uh, very much a vocal proponent of anti-communism. You know, curiously enough, one of her inner circle was Alan Greenspan, who became the head of the Fed. Federal Reserve. You wonder what kind of influence she might have had on him. Certainly, yeah. She was one of his intimate acquaintances in her famous circle called the Collective, of all things. Yeah, there's some irony there, huh? Yeah, yeah. She she's had some interesting um, political viewpoints. She she detested many of the prominent liberal and even conservative politicians of her time, and among people she detested were Harry S. Truman, Ronald Reagan. Hubert Humphrey and Joseph McCarthy. I can see the latter one easily. But she she was a pacifist. She opposed the U.S. involvement in World War One, World War Two, and the Korean War. Um, although she said she was not a complete pacifist. She said, when a nation resorts to war, it has some purpose, rightly or wrongly, something to fight for, and the only justifiable purpose is self-defense. So she was against U.S. involvement in wars because it wasn't self-defense. She opposed the Vietnam War. Here's a quote from her. If you want to see the ultimate suicidal extreme of altruism on an international scale, observe the war in Vietnam, a war in which American soldiers are dying for no purpose whatever. She was opposed to any form of altruism, that is, this unconditional giving of the self, the self-empty, emptying, for another purpose's well-being. She felt many people are undeserving and and what you were doing was holding yourself back from becoming truly human by giving of your your time, your effort, your energy, your love to somebody else who doesn't deserve it. And so while many people on the political left probably applauded her protest of the Vietnam War, I'm sure they despised her motives for doing so, or at least some sure, of her motives sure. for, for doing that. And I wonder what her opinion of the current war in Iraq would be. We could probably guess that it would be similarly disdainful. I sure. Think. I mean, that kind of altruism, this emptying of America's treasure and and um, forty thousand plus dead as a result, or four thousand plus dead as a result. I'm projecting to the future. Maybe we can't some <laughs> weird war, but um, I'm sure she would not be in favor of it. 
Here are some people who, who claim that, that reading Ayn Rand has influenced their lives. James Clavell, the novelist, um, Alan Greenspan, Hugh Hefner, of all people, Angelina Jolie, Billie Jean King, Anton LaVey of Satanism fame, Rush Limbaugh, Ron Paul, John Stossel, Clarence Thomas. Now the interesting thing about that list is, though there have been some, some major figures that have been positively influenced by her, uh, the most recent prominent figure on that list barely garnered any notice at all in the political campaign, Ron Paul. If yes. people are so ah. caught up, this is the thing I guess I don't understand myself. People buying Rand's books, mm-hmm. claiming to love them, to be inspired by them, it's it's continues to be a, a bestseller, uh, second or third only to the Bible. But then when somebody puts forward some Randian proposals, which I think you can fairly claim that many of Ron Paul's ideas were pretty squarely in that category, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they don't seem to get any adulation at all. No, no. So I wonder why that is, that... that are people of, of, they like the ideas but afraid of what they might end up with if they actually were put into place or yeah, what kind of person would you become if you adopted Ayn Rand's principles um, you wouldn't be a very likable person it would seem to me uh, in fact you might be even ostracized for being just completely selfish if you took her self-interest to an extreme but she seems to like extremes yeah um, but I, I think to account for the popularity of her books, maybe she's had such an influence on our culture that you can't claim to be educated unless you say, well, I've, I've read her books. And maybe, maybe the, we were joking about um, her being on the 10 most popular authors uh, list in this country with the Bible being the top, but maybe those are books that are Purchased but not read, read. yeah, (laughs) Uh, because both Atlas Shrug and the Fountainhead are are tomes. They're huge tomes. You've got to want to get through uh, both of them. They're not quick reads, Mm -hmm. and so yeah, I do do wonder how many people uh, have them on the bookshelf without reading them. Especially because it's it's not just a storyline. She's developing her philosophy of objectivism through her characters. John Galt is philosophizing as you go through the book. He's telling you why he does this. He's telling the reader. Or she's doing that, of course, as the author. The name objectivism comes from her basic epistemology that reality is out there and it can be known as it is. Not just, she's opposed to even Locke, representative realism. She's opposed to Hume. Well, she claims to be an empiricist. We can know through our senses. But in terms of current metaphysics and epistemology she seems to be on the losing side of that because oh, okay. more and more we seem to be discovering through uh, quantum mechanics and, and uh, other pursuits of, of physics that there's a certain amount of reality that's unknowable or at least mm-hmm. uncertain mm-hmm. if Heisenberg is, is to be believed. Yes. And so I wonder what if if the metaphysics of objectivism turn out to be wrong, can the ethics of self-interest uh, still uh, be preserved? Good, good observation. Yeah, she was not gifted with a lot of um, scientific knowledge because science was on, on, on a cusp. There were breakthroughs happening as she was writing. 
So she, she, she couldn't be relied upon for objective statements about reality, and yet she bases her whole philosophy on that. Right. And beyond her uh, claim that reality is knowable, what, what's her evidence for that that she's presenting? Kant is wrong, but what's her evidence for the claim that that Kant is wrong and there is a, a completely... Curiously enough, her evidence is reason. Reason is the ultimate reality. Um, because it's reasonable to say that, that there is real matter out there. And the evidence of the senses is so overwhelming, it would be unreasonable to deny that. And that's, that's her basis. Uh, now, isn't that some of what motivated Kant to postulate a transcendental realm in the first <laughs> it did, place, that it, it, it seemed like a postulate of reason? Yes, I mean, it, it was a postulate of reason. We, we can't prove it, but it seems like it, it's very interesting that, uh, because as you say, she was uh, very much opposed to Kant's philosophy. Yes. And especially his, uh, his ethics of duty. She, um, she has a fundamental overweening principle. She calls it the axiom, the law of identity. I guess the same as it is with Aristotle and in logic. A thing is what it is. And because it is, it can be known. So she said it would be unreasonable to deny that. That's a pretty strong statement. In fact, she has three axioms. The axiom of existence. So an axiom is, um, is so self-evident it doesn't need to be proven. So her first axiom is the axiom of existence and basically that says that existence exists there is existence out there and who could deny that and be reasonable the second I've already mentioned is the axiom that goes the law of identity a thing is what it is a is a um, a thing can't be and not be at the same time in the same way right and then her third axiom is what she calls the axiom of consciousness. That a thing, if it exists, can't only be aware of itself, must be aware of others. So reality means being conscious that reality is out there. And to deny that would be irrational. So reason demands that we accept a material world out there. The, the evidence is presented by our senses. But I, I think she's all caught up in the idea, the American ideal of the rugged individual, and the rugged individual with limitless possibilities, and that only, only uh, an unworthy moocher, a parasite of an individual, would even consider living off other people. The real hero, in fact, the heroic ideal is. She speaks about continually, the the capitalist man, who achieves power and wealth by his own doing, by dint of his own struggle. And she will accept nothing to get in the way of that struggle. And religion, she sees, by the way, is something that would get in the way of that, an obstacle. It, it just, it diverts man's true energies away from the reality of wealth, acquiring wealth and power. And in that, she liked Nietzsche very much, and his crit critique of religion. So she, she was influenced by a, a potpourri of philosophers from Aristotle, and she hated, she hated Plato, by the way, because Plato would say sure, that the, makes sense. the reality of this world is not this world. Right. She was influenced by a lot of philosophers and subsequently had an influence on uh, 
not necessarily so many philosophers, but certainly popular culture. But you know, it's um, it's very interesting to see that most dictionaries of philosophy don't mention her, so she she can't have had that much influence on philosophy. But she herself was influenced by them. It's kind of a cafeteria approach to philosophy. She picked and chose what she thinks. Let me, if I can. She has a brief entry in the Routledge Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and here's how it goes. The influence of Rand's ideas was strongest among college students in the USA, but attracted little attention from academic philosophers. Rand's political theory is of little interest. Its unremitting hostility towards the state and taxation sits inconsistently with a rejection of anarchism, and her attempts to resolve the difficulty are ill-thought-out and unsystematic. There's probably no more damning comment about a, a putative philosopher than that inconsistency and contradiction. And that's where we'll have to leave our discussion. Sad to leave her go. She's so influential. Be sure to visit us at RadioFreePhilosophy.com and contact us by email at askaphilosopher at yahoo.com. Until the daybreak and the shadows be away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense.